Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all those places. And I have a blog. I haven't written in that in quite a while. I think my last post was right before the Austin oral argument in March of 2021. But there's some good stuff there from back in the day. You can check that out at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can shoot me an email at rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right, today is July 26th, 2022, and in this episode, I'm going to continue my discussion of Conference Realignment 2.0 and a specific analysis of this contract provision, which is getting a lot of press right now, called the Grant of Rights. And if you've been paying attention to this Conference Realignment issue, you've probably seen articles explaining what this Grant of Rights contract is, what it attempts to accomplish, and how it's relevant in the discussions about what the conference landscape is going to look like going forward. And again, this is a football show. It's driven by football interests. And the history of the formation of the Power Five conferences and the first round of realignment are really important to understand because that sets the context for what's happening right now. And I have tried to keep up with what's been written on these grant of rights provisions. I call them provisions. They're actually separate contracts that incorporate the broadcast media deal rights and try to provide some disincentive for conference members to leave the conference that they are currently a member of. And this was kind of an insurance policy after the first round of conference realignment to prevent what's happening right now, the very thing that's happening right now in this new game of of musical chairs. And as was the case with the first round of realignment, no one wants to be left without the seat that they covet when the music stops playing. So what I want to do is just talk about it at a very basic level, what these contracts are, what a grant of rights is, who grants the rights, who receives the grant of rights, and what are the rights that are being granted and what purpose are they intended to serve and what purpose will they likely serve because there have been some interesting questions raised about the enforceability of these types of contracts. And I guess I, I want to say up front that so much of the coverage and the renewed interest in these grant of rights provisions has focused on the immediate practical impact in terms of the short-term decision-making and thinking of schools that might want to leave to go to another conference. And that's important to understand. But I want to look at these contracts and their impact through the lens of values. Because this whole industry, higher education writ large, and then intercollegiate athletics as a component of higher education are built around values. These market participants, the universities, the conferences, the people who are making decisions within them as fiduciaries for those entities are supposed to have the values of higher education and intercollegiate athletics front and center in their decision making. And more specifically, the interests of the quote-unquote student athletes that are supposed to be at the center of these values. And to set the framework for a discussion of these issues, I'm going to use a resource that is really useful in analyzing the grant of rights provisions. But back when I was doing my pay-for-play episodes, trying to explain the history of big-time college sports with an emphasis on how the big-time football interests have become the dominant force in intercollegiate athletics at every level, I ran across some discussions about these grant of rights provisions, and that was when I was researching this period, like 2011 to 2014, really on the end of the meaningful wave of conference realignment in the beginning of the CFP in 2012 and autonomy legislation in, in 2014. And that's such an important period. I actually did two episodes on the year 2014 because so many important things happened in that year. 
So I started doing some research on this grant of rights things just to understand what it was and how it fit into the puzzle. And there, there was very little out in the literature that really explained what was going on here. And there were some articles in the mainstream media, but nothing that really tried to explain start to finish what these grant of rights provisions were about. And I was doing just some general research because I wanted to actually look at the contracts themselves to see what they mean. I want to really understand what the document actually says, not how some sports reporter describes it. And I couldn't find it. I couldn't find the actual grant of rights agreement. So then I started doing research into the law review literature and the economics journal literature. And I'm thinking there's got to be somebody out there somewhere that took a look at these grant of rights contracts and these provisions. Again, I was really surprised at how little there was, but there was one article that just jumped out because it seemed to be right on point. And it's a 2017 article that's written by an attorney. His name's Mark Wilhelm. And the title of the article is Irrevocable but Unenforceable, Collegiate Athletic Conferences Grant of Rights. And it appeared in uh, the Harvard Law School's Journal of Sports and Entertainment Law. I I read the article and I just found it fascinating and Mr. Wilhelm, through Freedom of Information Act requests, actually, I should say public records requests because these were directed to state institutions, he obtained copies of the grant of rights documents from the ACC, the Pac-12, and the Big 12. The Big 10 resisted. They didn't provide it, and they made up all kinds of silly excuses. And then there was a belief at the time that the SEC didn't have a grant of rights provision. I've read some stuff that suggests that they do, but I'm not 100% sure about that. And I like a lot of things I come across, I bookmarked it and said, yeah, that might be something I want to talk about at some point. But at the time when I was doing this research, this was in 2019 maybe, there really wasn't any issue with the stability of the Power Five conferences. Uh, and there was no suggestion that any of the conferences or any of the individual schools in any of those conferences were looking to either leave a conference or uh, if you're a conference, pick up a, a new inventory. You know, and disrupt this carefully calibrated status quo that existed through this Power Five structure, this new beast, the likes of which college sports had never seen before. And it's a very powerful, carefully calibrated juggernaut that seemed invincible back in uh, 2019, 2020. And then in July of 2021, almost exactly a year ago, news broke that Texas and Oklahoma were leaving the Big 12 for the SEC. And it was just a bombshell and the sense of complacency that the Power Five appeared to have in their relationship to each other was just turned upside down and it really was a body blow to the stability of the Power Five conferences. And I think there are a lot of people, myself included, who looked at the history of big-time powerful football and this first round of conference realignment and thought, there's likely to be another shakeout here because this may not be the final destination. And I've talked about it in terms of the logical endpoint for big-time football after Board of Regents. But despite those defections, it didn't appear that there was an immediate domino effect. So I thought again about talking about these grant of rights provisions, but then I held off because nothing really happened. And it looked like this could be just a one-off and maybe the destabilization of the Big 12 wasn't a big deal because as I discussed in my episode 42, and I was looking at the Texas-Oklahoma defections, I did that episode right after that announcement in July of 2021. And I ranked the conferences in terms of stability. And when you look honestly at the the least stable conferences, and I thought those were the ACC and the Big 12 with the Big 12 at the bottom. I said the Big 12 is ripe for the picking. It makes sense. It's in the geographical footprint. It's not a big deal. This may not be the domino that sets off a chain reaction, and in the short run, it didn't. But when the Big 10, again, out of the blue, pick off UCLA and USC, and the nature of that pickoff was fundamentally different from what the SEC got with Texas and Oklahoma, because you now have the geographical footprint of the Big Ten stretching from Southern California to the upper Northeast Coast. So, you know, this wasn't a difference 
of degree in terms of poaching other schools. This was different in kind, in my judgment. And I think you really started to see the panic set in the conferences that were vulnerable and the schools in those conferences who may want to be with a different conference. And so then I'm thinking, I got to do something on this grant of rights because this is going to be a big issue, particularly for the ACC. I, you know, I'm an ACC guy. I played basketball for Duke. I grew up in North Carolina. I love the ACC. And in that analysis I did in episode 42 in July of 2021, I, I pointed out that the ACC was very, very unstable and, and vulnerable in a conference realignment scenario. And then I guess it was just a couple of weeks ago, I saw an article in The Athletic by Andy Staples, who I really like. He does a lot of good work. And he apparently found Mr. Wilhelm's article and he interviewed Mr. Wilhelm. Substance of the article really went to the enforceability of these grant of rights provisions. And so I thought, you know, I need to go ahead and throw my two cents worth in here. <laughs> and it had been on my to-do list and now seemed like the right time. So I actually reached out to Mr. Wilhelm, sent him an email, and then he graciously responded. And we spoke last week and had a really good conversation. So I want to do a little bit of setup here on Mr. Wilhelm's article and my discussion with him. And I'm going to do that at the broadest levels. Mr. Wilhelm's article is about I don't know, 50, 55 pages long. And it is written by a very smart lawyer for other lawyers. And as law review articles, law journal articles tend to be, it's deep in the weeds in certain areas. But I'm going to go ahead and link to it in the show notes of my podcast website, the bigamateurism.com website. It won't appear on the third-party directories. But I think there are portions of the article that are lay-friendly, the opening, the introduction, and then the summary, I think are readable. And then the conclusion, I think, is important as well. And then the table of contents kind of gives you a tour of the substantive issues, and you can look through it and decide for yourself whether you want to dive in. Mr. Wilhelm explained to me that he conceptualized the article as a law student, and he wrote the first iteration for a class while he was in law school at Villanova. And prior to Villanova, he had worked in the athletics department at the University of Michigan. He received his undergraduate degree at Michigan. And in his experience in the athletics department, he came to believe that sometimes there is a misconception that every decision that's made in big-time athletics departments revolves exclusively around money. And his later discussion of the grant of rights issue was a way to illustrate how so many factors, non-economic factors, influence decision-making at the big-time college sports level. And that's one of the reasons I really liked his article, because looking at some of these non-economic factors brings you closer, I think, think to a values discussion. And that's where I like to land because I think that's really what's most important right now. And again, I'm looking at this through the lens of athletes' rights. Mr. Wilhelm's looking at it probably more through institutional interests and also just through a kind of an independent look at the grant of rights as an attorney. So I am drawn to the values-based discussions and the intersection of the money and the values and the, the value system of higher education and the business of big-time college sports. But after law school, Mr. Wilhelm joined a large firm, Pepper Hamilton, and he is in corporate transactions. And it's a big firm. Actually, his firm merged with Troutman Sanders in Atlanta. And I actually started my legal career at Troutman Sanders back in the late 80s. And it was a large Atlanta firm. And there's been a lot of merger mania in the legal industry. And I was joking with Mr. Wilhelm that you know, we're talking about conference realignment 2.0, and his firm is a product of law firm realignment. I don't know, 3 or 4.0. It's been going on for a long time, but it's a big firm. And as a corporate attorney, a, a transaction-oriented attorney, his day-to-day -day life is knee-deep in very complicated contract negotiations and analysis and drafting. So he's very well situated to look at these issues from a contract standpoint. And that's how he approached it in his article. So before I get into the substance of the article, I have to issue a couple of disclaimers. I want to make very clear up front that Mr. Wilhelm did not 
offer any advice on how you would go about challenging a grant of rights provision. And one of the things I asked him when we were chatting was uh, now that his article was brought to life and out of the obscurity of the law journal inventory, and it is vast, and with the internet, the wonders of the internet, you have access to so much good material, which means, of course, that there's some really important work that doesn't get much attention. So it was really nice that Mr. Staples was able to identify Mr. Wilhelm's article and bring it to life. But I asked Mr. Wilhelm, has this raised your profile? And he said, indeed, it had. But I was very careful not to ask, and he would not have told me. He was very disciplined in our discussion to stay away from any thickets. But I didn't ask him, and he didn't tell me whether other people were asking him his thoughts, I guess is the best way to put it on some of these grant of rights issues. But I guess I'll just say this. If I'm an athletics director in a Power Five conference outside of the SEC or the Big Ten, or really any other market participant in, in the Power Five marketplace that may be impacted by these grant of rights, I might give some serious thought to picking up the phone and giving Mr. Wilhelm a call. And again, I have no idea whether that's occurring and if it is with whom, but he'd be a great resource. And this is a very arcane legal issue. And within contract law, there's some unique features to these grant of rights provisions that are really tricky in terms of the standard elements of a contract and what constitutes a contract. And Mr. Wilhelm has a section in his article on the enforceability of these contracts and what he sees as some of the weaknesses in the way these contracts are put together. And again, I really didn't focus on that, but I think it's fair to say, because this is now pretty obvious in the public reporting of this Conference Realignment 2 point, that everybody who is governed by these grant of rights provisions has taken a fresh and really hard look at what they mean and, and whether they are enforceable. And if you're the ACC, for example, Jim Phillips, the conference commissioner, you want to make the case that the ACC's grant of rights is an airtight disincentive for any school to leave. And that grant of rights goes into 2036, which poses some unique challenges for institutions that, that may want to challenge the grant of rights. So if you're a, a school in the ACC that wants to challenge this contract, you're going to have your people looking at it and trying to figure out what it means. And what's interesting to me is that when you read the articles that have been done on this grant of rights and you get quotes from in-system stakeholders, mostly it's people at the conference level or athletics directors or people who will be involved in reviewing these contracts, you get the sense that they really didn't understand what these documents said what they mean and how important they would be in a scenario like this. And it, it speaks to, I think, some dynamics of human nature. We often don't look at, our, at what our rights are until our rights are at issue. <laughs> and these contracts have been in place since 2013. And Mr. Wilhelm and I talked about this a little bit. And this isn't unique to college sports. I think it may be more of a problem in the climate and culture of college sports and athletics departments because they're not thinking necessarily at the institutional level like Fortune 500 companies. I think the conferences think that way. I think the NCAA thinks that way. And obviously the sports entertainment industry thinks that way. But I'm guessing that the average Power 5 athletics department, you don't have anybody coming into work one day and say, you know what, I think I'll just brush up on that grant of rights provision that we signed in 2013. But now they're pulling their dust-covered grant of rights provision out of the closet or out of the file cabinet, and they are now pouring over it. So I just want to start with how Mr. Wilhelm describes the grant of rights and what they try to accomplish. And this is in a section titled Conference's Current Solution to Realignment, the Grant of Rights. And he says, as of late, conferences utilize one main solution to slow the exit of schools from their respective conferences, a contractual grant of rights. With the assumption that schools are highly conscious of revenues, especially television revenues, some conferences have secured a grant of television rights from their member institutions. This grant of rights attempts to assign the television rights of member schools to the conference. With the television rights of individual members secured by the conference, presumably schools will be less attractive targets for conferences adding member schools. 
If a school cannot take its television rights to a new conference, it is neither a prudent financial decision for the school to leave the conference nor for a new conference to accept that school. So basically what happens under these grant of rights, and they are intimately tied to broadcast media revenue because that is the kind of the blunt force instrument that's used to uh, essentially define the cost of reneging on your conference affiliation and then going to another conference. So basically, a school's institution's individual value out in the marketplace is quantified by the value of the existing broadcast media agreements that it has with its corporate partners. And for the ACC, for example, it's ESPN. So when you're talking about the grant of rights provision, the grant or the person making the grant is the individual school, and they are granting to the conference entity, the grantee, all of the school's television rights, all their broadcast media value. So an individual school has a broadcast media value that it could sell out in the marketplace and to take it outside of the conference setting. You have independent products like Notre Dame, for example, or the Longhorn Network. You have schools that have these powerful brands that operate independent of conference entities. So Notre Dame has value as an independent individual school. All of the schools in the ACC have independent individual value. It's not That value is not differentiated in these broadcast media outlets. Everybody gets an equal share, and that's a bone of contention for the higher producing football schools. But under these deals, each school has their own individual value that they then assign, the broadcast media value rights, they assign to the conference. That's the grant, and the right that's being granted is the value of that individual school broadcast media value as measured by the ESPN broadcast media contracts. So under this ESPN contract, each school's payout each year averages $36 million a year. So that value is transferred to the conference, and the conference basically owns that interest, and the school can't take it with them, which means that the school has no real value if it leaves the conference in violation of the grant of rights provision, which provides very strong incentive for them to stay with the ACC. The problem is that these grant of rights provisions run coterminous with the length of the broadcast media contract, and this ESPN contract with the ACC goes until 2036. A lot of people think it's a bad deal for the ACC. And then it's a great deal for ESPN. But that's basically the structure. And so the incentive structure under this grant of rights makes it very difficult, if not impossible, for a school to just say, okay, I'm going to leave the ACC and say, I'm going to go to the SEC. Because in order to get out of the contractual arrangement, they would have to pay the value of their broadcast media rights that are a pro rata part of that broadcast media agreement with ESPN. And for a, a school in the ACC, 36 million times, I don't know, how many years are we looking at here? You could be talking about a few hundred million dollars to get out from under a grant of rights provision if it were challenged and if the, the grant of rights provision were upheld. So those are high stakes. And I just want to point out that that time term is so important because the farther you get into that contract, the less incentive you have to honor it because your financial liability decreases over time. And one of the interesting things about the, the prior defections in Realignment 2.0, both with uh, Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC and UCLA, USC to the Big Ten, is that both the Big 12 and the Pac-12, the originating conferences, their broadcast media contracts were about to expire. So they were on the tail end of that time frame, which meant that there really wasn't a, a kind of a threshold bar to leaving those conferences. And that is not the case with the ACC. And the ACC has been at the propaganda level trying to make that point as loudly as they can, that you can't look at the defections from the Big 12 and the Pac-12 as similar to the situation in the ACC, because the time element is fundamentally different in those scenarios. So that's the basic dilemma that schools who want to leave a conference are faced with. And it also explains why 
the schools out of the Big 12 aren't joining the SEC for a couple years, and the schools out of the Pac-12 are going to have to delay a little bit because they're going to wait until the grant of rights contracts have fully expired so that there's not a huge financial hit. So that's basically the way that the contract is structured and the purpose of it is to try to discourage all of this movement between conferences to prevent exactly what happened in the first wave of conference realignment. And then Mr. Wilhelm then talks about the factors that go into why a school might want to leave and the underlying causes of realignment and and how the schools want to guard against it. And basically it's an incentive system. What are the incentives in this decision. And it's interesting, Mr. Wilhelm made a reference to the prisoner's dilemma and this question of whether a group of prisoners who are charged with a crime are better off in the aggregate cooperating or turning on each other. I talked about that dynamic because it's applicable here in this round of conference realignment, but it was also relevant in the relationship between the NCAA itself and then the Power Five as a group of conferences. And it came up in the Austin case during oral argument when Justice Sotomayor was asking Seth Waxman a question about why the conferences just shouldn't be left alone to do their own thing with these education-related benefits and why the NCAA needed to be involved at all. And Waxman's response was that that really posed a classic prisoner's dilemma. And the prisoners in that scenario were the NCAA in one cell and the Power Five conferences as a group in the other cell. And Waxman was saying we needed a national agreement on these compensation limits and this fixed cost of labor, and that if we didn't have that, there would be absolute chaos and the prisoners would turn on each other. And that prisoner's dilemma hypothetical has been applied in a a number of different areas, including with cartels. Cartels have a classic prisoner's dilemma because they have some incentive to cooperate because in the aggregate, they may be all better off, even though they may get less than they might in the short term if they tried to steal profits from other cartel members or turn on the cartel in the short run. Keeping the cartel together in the long run is more advantageous than them turning on each other and then losing the the benefit of control over the market. And it was interesting in the Austin case, the experts in that case, the athletes experts, Dan Rasher and Roger Knoll, they described the Power Five conferences after the autonomy movement, this autonomy movement in 2014, as a sub-cartel of the NCAA. And through that autonomy movement, the Power Five conferences really created an association within an association under the NCAA umbrella to completely segregate their financial and regulatory interests from the rest of the NCAA. And in the current prisoner's dilemma, you really have that kind of cartel dynamic in in these five Power Five conferences. And there are two dominant cartel members that everybody wants to join. And those are the Big Ten and the SEC. And then now you have this lower tier of cartel members, the Pac-12, the Big 12, and the ACC, who are trying to keep their group in the cartel together. So you have these individual schools in those three conferences, some of them, not all of them, but some of them who have to weigh the incentives. And I think when you look at the incentives identified by Mr. Wilhelm in his article and look at it through this prisoner's dilemma in the cartel context, these are complicated analyses that really, I think, forces the prisoners to really think long and hard about what they want and what scenario, what after scenario they want. So I want to go through these factors that Mr. Wilhelm identifies and then apply them to the prisoners in the Pac-12, Big 12, and ACC who are weighing their options. And he identifies four main motivating factors behind conference realignment. One is the well-accepted and pretty obvious money factor. Are you better off staying in your existing conference financially, or would you be better off financially in another conference? And again, I would say that when you look at the revenue gaps between the 
Big Ten and the SEC on the one hand, and then the other three conferences on the other. They are substantial and they are growing. And that, I think, artificially accelerates the urgency that some of the prisoners in, in these three cells, if you view the three conferences as kind of three separate cells, or actually, as Mr. Wilhelm said, maybe three separate police stations with the uh, member institutions at the police station in, in different cells, three conference police stations. So they would be better off, I think, most of them would be moving to the SEC or the Big Ten. Then you have the issue of the second factor, which is increased university exposure. And the, I don't know how the prisoners are evaluating that issue. And if you're a Clemson, for example, and you have some incentives to leave, if the SEC wants you and you have some incentives to leave, you probably would make more money in the SEC. And But who knows what that does in terms of coverage. If the ACC stays together, you're still top dog and you are a national power and you have some stature there that I think might be harder to come by in the SEC. I don't know if they're thinking about it that way, but you know, not, not all these issues cut in the same direction. Then the third factor that Mr. Wilhelm identifies is a chance to improve on the field performance. And again, that's who knows how the athletics decision makers are thinking about that. And then the fourth thing that Mr. Wilhelm identifies is a strategic behavior based on the structure of how the national football champion is selected. And then what conference affiliation would be best for your individual institutional interest to to get a national championship. And that is one of the primary motivating forces in these athletics departments. And all those things in some way or another can be expressed through money, but they're not necessarily always just about the money. And uh, that was one of the things that uh, Mr. Wilhelm and I t talked about at some length at, at the values level. And it remains to be seen how some of these schools wanting to defect, you know, how they're valuing some of these non-economic factors. And obviously, th these schools all are in the big-time college sports sweepstakes because they believe that it is consistent with their institutional values. Every single school in the Power Five has already made that decision at some level because of their membership in a Power Five conference. This next round of realignment, which could lead to maybe three conferences, but heck, maybe even two. Who knows? That's a whole nother level of, of commitment to the big-time college sports sweepstakes. And there's no telling what the discussions are, for example, in the ACC. And th these discussions, you hope, are not just focused on the on perception. I think there's a, a perception that if you want to have the highest quality, the best brand in big time football, you're going to want to be with the Big Ten or the SEC. There's no question about that. But if you want your branding and marketing to represent something more than that, then I, I think you're going to have to really do some soul searching about where you want to land in this marketplace that is driven almost exclusively by the quest for supremacy and superiority in big time college football. And do you think you can enhance the prestige of your university by being in that game? And I think, I hope, that's the kind of discussion that's going on at the ACC. And I think that's a discussion that's been going on at some level in college sports, really going back to the early 20th century. And you go back to the Carnegie Report in 1929 and Henry Pritchett's preface, and he was talking about why are prestigious universities in the business of big-time college football? And that was really about college football. And he just came back to the fundamental things that universities crave. They want prestige, they want power, they want publicity, they want social currency, and they think all that leads to more money, money money, money. And those basic incentives haven't changed in higher education and this American drive to be the best and to perfectibility and to how you're perceived by your peer institutions, by the stakeholders and by the general public. Those are the lifeblood of the motivations of higher education in the United States. And it'll be interesting to see as this plays out whether any of the stakeholders in the conferences outside of the Big Ten and the SEC are going to talk about it on those terms and say, we no longer see big-time college football as a line 
aligned with the rest of our goals as an institution of higher education. It'll be a, a litmus test on the values of higher education, all these things that these institutions talk about. And I just want to point out that when ACC Conference Commissioner Jim Phillips was speaking at the ACC's summer meeting, football meeting, he was very clear to make the case that the ACC was thinking about this differently, that it was happy with its identity, that it was a strong conference, that everybody was looking only at the scenarios under which its top football products go to the Big Ten or the SEC, but that it's really comfortable where it is. And he was making a values-based argument to preserve the ACC. And he, it was interesting, he got some criticism. I think the main response to that was criticism, that he was speaking a dead language. He's speaking the language of honor and integrity and the student-athlete and academic integrity and, you know, all that stuff. When we're in the midst of the front edge of a free-for-all, another free-for-all, like the one that we went through in the first round of realignment. But then locally here, I live in North Carolina, locally here, there were some interesting articles that basically said, look, is, is Jim Phillips the last idea? in the Power Five decision-making chairs is the ACC, the last group of idealists, really saying, look, maybe Phillips has a point and maybe the ACC is going to think about these decisions in a different way. And every other conference so far has been involved in some of this realignment 2.0, the ACC has not. And it may not be just because of the length of the grant of rights. It may be because at the values level, the ACC is doing some real soul searching right now. But who knows? And this will all reveal itself as the prisoners are weighing their options and making their final decisions. And there's another way I want to look at this. And this was inspired by a quote that Mr. Wilhelm included in his Law Journal article, and, and we talked a little bit about this, and it presents an interesting question that I think really goes to the heart of what the prisoners may be thinking, what the incentive structure looks right now. And that could change. All these factors are, are moving parts, and the financial issues, I think, are up in the air, and the Big Ten's in the process of negotiating its broadcast media contract with Fox, and we don't know what those final numbers are going to be. But in this article, Mr. Wilhelm used a quote from um, former Big Ten Conference Commissioner Jim Delaney, and he was talking about the grant of rights provisions. I think this was back in 2011, 2012, maybe. And he was quoted in an article on the grant of rights contracts and their consequences and their purpose, really, more than anything. And of course, Delaney, I would say that in the modern history of college sports, he's probably the most influential conference commissioner ever. And he built the modern Big Ten and he was the primary spokesperson on behalf of Power Five interests. He's a very smart guy. He understands the business model probably better than anybody. And I think he's still doing some consulting work, I'm guessing, for the Big Ten. But he said, look, and this is his quote, the grant of rights is a chicken and egg thing. You do it not to become stable. You do it because you are stable. And that is such an important way to look at these grant of rights provisions. Because I think if you compare, say, the Big Ten and the ACC, the Big Ten is among the most stable conferences in the Power Five. And when I did that episode 42 on the stability analyses, I had the Big Ten number one and the SEC a close number two. And the Big Ten, whatever its grant of rights contract says, they, they won't produce it. But I'm guessing that if today the Big Ten and the, the conference entity said, we want the Big Ten members to execute or extend the existing grant of rights. How many Big Ten schools would say no? If they had the chance to opt out of the grant of rights as they're discussing an extension or a renewal, how many Big Ten schools would say, no, nah, I think I'm going to take a pass on that because I want to keep my options open. And if that means that I lose my membership, then I lose my membership. The answer is zero. There's not a single Big Ten school who would even flirt with that decision because they are in the premier conference right now. In many ways, and no disrespect to the SEC, the SEC has performed better football-wise, but if you're looking at the total package, you're looking at the academic package, the academic prestige, you're looking at the football product, you're looking at the overall kind of branding and marketing prestige, 
The Big Ten, I think, is the premier conference. And from an academic standpoint, they're kind of in a different ballpark than the SEC, quite frankly. I went back and looked at the News and World Report rankings for national universities, the top tier, the top category, the overall ranking for the top universities in the United States of America. And I got the ranking for all the schools and all the Power Five conferences, and then I averaged them. And the ACC and the Big Ten are tied at a rank, an average rank of 55. So the average Big Ten and ACC school is ranked number 55 in the country. And that's a pretty good ranking. And they had some eye-popping rankings towards the top. And as ridiculous as the Big Ten's pickup of UCLA and USC was from a geography standpoint and an athlete well-being standpoint, it was a hell of a pickup academically because you have UCLA ranked in the last couple of years as the as the top public university in the United States. And UC Berkeley and, and Michigan and UCLA are in that conversation. And then with USC, you have a private school that's ranked in the top 25. That's huge for the Big Ten. So from academically, the Big Ten looks better on paper with UCLA and USC. So you have the ACC and the Big Ten tied at 55, averaged a rank of 55, then there's a massive drop down to the Pac-12, which is at 91, and that reflects the loss of UCLA and USC. And then below that, you have the SEC at 107. That's a huge drop. And the SEC actually improved its ranking a little bit by picking up Texas, Texas Austin. That's a, a highly ranked public university. And then the Big 12 is really not even in the same ballpark. The average ranking of the Big 12 schools, including the schools that are coming in, the four schools that are coming in, is 147. So when you look at the combination of of football firepower and the academic profile of institutions, the Big Ten is really, I think, at the top of the heap. So if you're a Big Ten school, you sign that damn grant of rights agreement. You don't even read it. Just give me the document. Let me sign the damn thing. I think if you, when you flip that script and you look at Delaney's quote on the, I guess the Big Ten would be the chicken and let's call the ACC the egg. The ACC is using its grant of rights provision right now. The, runs into 2036 with this ridiculously long contract. I'm not a huge fan of these long-term contracts, and this is one of the reasons why. But the ACC is trying to enforce stability. It was unstable after the first round of conference realignment because it was trying to become something that it wasn't before, and that is a big-time powerful football conference. And I think you had schools that were forced into the ACC that didn't even really want to be there. So if you pose that same question and you say, okay, let's say that the ACC's grant of rights is going to expire tomorrow. And you go to the current ACC member institutions and you say, sign this grant of rights agreement that's going to bind you to us for the next 20 years. And if you leave, it's going to cost you a couple hundred million dollars. How many schools sign that? There are probably at least seven who would say, are you serious? No freaking way. And those are schools that are very likely to wind up either in the SEC or the Big Ten. This is just a hypothetical. And people have been talking about these hypotheticals. So I'm hoping I'm not going to ruffle any feathers. But if you're UVA, or UNC, two other public Ivies, maybe the Big Ten would be a great fit for you. You have some of the geographical issues, but for the Big Ten's basic footprint, the Midwest footprint, it wouldn't be that big of a deal, I don't think. And then if you're, say, Clemson, Florida State, Miami, you want to land in the SEC probably. And I think the SEC would love to have you. And then, of course, you have schools like NC State and Virginia Tech who knows where they may land? Who knows whether the Big Ten and the SEC would want to bring them in? But they sure as hell want to keep their options open. So if you look at it in terms of the chicken-egg dilemma that Delaney identified, the ACC is really a conference that's waiting to fall apart. And that brings me to a point I made in my last episode, and I've made before. In these big shifts in the structure of the big time college sports marketplace. There's so much emphasis on who might be left out. And the assumption is that it would be a horrible thing if there are schools that don't get a seat when the music stops playing. And I just disagree with that. I think with this next shakeout 
in the big-time football marketplace and a movement towards an obvious kind of NFL product. If you're a school in the ACC or in the Pac-12 or maybe in the Big 12, and you self-identify primarily through your academic reputation and your athletic reputation, maybe this is a time to just say, we're out, we're out. <laughs> and whether or not it's because you don't have a seat at the when the music stops playing, or maybe you just choose to stop playing the game. Maybe you just say, I'm not playing this round of musical chairs, and I'll be A-OK if on the backside of this wave of realignment, we land with a group of schools that really share the same values that we share. And we are not going to be in the big-time NFL college football sweepstakes at the cost of the identity of our institution. And I think that's also relevant to what may play out in practice in the conference realignment and then the ACC's grant of rights. And that's really the primary issue here. When we're talking grant of rights, we're really talking about the ACC right now because four other conferences are in a completely different boat. And the Big Ten and the SEC, there's nobody complaining about the grant of rights. There's nobody looking to leave. And the Pac-12 and the Big 12 are at the tail end of their existing grant of rights. It's a whole different ballgames. This is really about the ACC. And one of the things that I believe is that the ACC decision makers, they understand that they're trying to hold on to something that a substantial portion of the membership doesn't want to hold on to, and they want to be somewhere else. It's like a bad marriage. You're trying to pretend that this is a good marriage and that it's worth staying in the marriage, and maybe it's just time to get a divorce and start a new life, and the sooner the better. Right. And I'm going to get to the athletes' interest in this in a second. And I'm on the sooner rather than later side of that because that will accelerate, I hope, a realistic relationship between these new super conferences and the revenue producing labor force. But people are looking at this grant of rights issue through this gloom and doom scenario for the schools that might want to leave the ACC. But I think there's another way to look at it. And that is if, for example, Florida State, Miami, and Clemson say, we're going to leave. We're going to challenge this thing. And maybe UNC and UVA say, yeah, we're charter members of the ACC and we love the ACC, but it's a new day and we want to explore our options with the Big Ten. And then you have Virginia Tech and NC State saying, we're not sure where we want to land, but I'm not sure that this is going to be our final destination. So we want to explore our options too. If you have that many schools saying, look, I'm just not sure this is going to work. And they just make a bold move and they're going to challenge this grant of rights. Who's going to fight it? The, the remaining schools, the ACC conference entity. And what's the will of the remaining schools to fight that battle? Everybody's saying, oh, it's going to be a long, bloody, nasty legal battle, and this could go on for years, and it could cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And it could, I guess. But if you're advising a Duke or a Wake Forest or a Boston College who may not have a seat when the music stops playing, if the ACC power players decide to go a different way and challenge this grant of rights, do you want to throw good money after bad? What are you fighting for? And how hard do you want to fight for it? And how important is it to you? And I think that in some ways will force some of these values decisions. And it would be tragic from my standpoint. I love the ACC. And it was funny when I was talking to Mr. Wilhelm, we kept coming and coming back to some old school stuff. And I would love for things to be the way that they were when I played basketball at Duke. And I sometimes pine for the old times and all that, but that's not the marketplace. And it's not the reality of big time sports in 2022. And the NCAA has spent decades and hundreds of millions of dollars to try to pretend that the business model can be stuck in the 1950s, at least as it relates to the relationship between the laborers and the beneficiaries of the labor. But this next round of conference realignment just takes off that mask. There, there's just simply no way to continue to use that kind of rhetoric to defend an obviously professionalized product and what is going to be essentially an NFL league. 
league with these new super conferences. So let's just go ahead and get it over with. Let's get it over with. And then let's treat these athletes like free Americans, the ones who are providing the value in these products in the super conferences, in the new super conferences. And when that happens, then maybe we can also then talk about what the basketball product might look like. I have some thoughts on that in a kind of separation out in these super conferences by football interests. wouldn't necessarily mean the death of the college basketball rivalries and some of the important basketball products that might not have a seat when the music stops playing in this football-driven new round of realignment. But that's for another episode. So uh, the last thing I want to say is that when looking at these incentives, these prisoner dilemma incentives, and do you benefit from cooperation, continued cooperation, or do you benefit by turning on your fellow prisoners? The one thing, I think it's implied in Mr. Wilhelm's article, but it's not explicitly stated. And I talked a little bit about this, probably not as much as I should have. I wish I'd talk to him more about this because I wanted to get his thoughts on it. But ultimately, so much of the big time college sports marketplace and its motivations is based on this irrational, crazy game of competitive advantage, competitive disadvantage, and these college coaches laying up at night trying to find some way to just get that slightest edge over the competition. And a lot of that expresses itself in the talent acquisition market and recruiting. And I think that Because that's the way that the big-time coaches and athletics directors and athletics administrative personnel think about their profession and their jobs, that's really the motivating force here. And as the Big Ten and the SEC increase the distance between the rest of college sports and the rest of college football, that drive to remain competitive, to be in the game, to be at the big boy table, to be on the field for the big championships is going to be so powerful that schools in the ACC, like Clemson, Florida State, Miami, maybe UNC, UVA, and I mentioned Virginia Tech and NC State, who knows, but you're going to see those dynamics being so irrepressible in this grand battle for power, prestige, and victory that they simply can't stand by and and just watch their competitive advantage slip away and transform into what they may perceive as an insurmountable competitive disadvantage. I can just tell you, these people are not going to stand by idly and let that happen. And I think that's going to force these issues. And I think it's going to happen sooner rather than later. And one of the important inflection points here on the horizon is going to be this new Big Ten contract, and that at least on the financial term of the motivations among the the prisoners, that financial term has become a symbol for power, prestige, and competitive advantage. And I think that as those numbers disparities increase, you're just going to see a lot more pressure from the prisoners in the ACC cells looking to turn on their fellow prisoners. So we'll see what happens. And I think things are going to start to come together pretty quickly here. I can't imagine a scenario where the powerful football inventory in the ACC just says, okay, we're going to ride this out for a few years, get a little bit farther along this contract that goes into 2036 and get to a financial tipping point where we feel like we can absorb whatever losses would accrue to us based on on the, what's left on that contract. I just don't see that happening. This can't play out for years and years and years. This is going to be something that's going to be a chronic issue for the schools that perceive that they're losing a competitive advantage. All right. Well, with that, I'm just going to close this thing out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I want to thank Mr. Wilhelm again for taking time to talk with me. It was a great conversation and I can't wait to see what happens. All right. I hope to have you back for the next episode of The Big amateurism monologues. Take care.